You're listening to the Depends on How You Look at It podcast. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And I'm your host, Isaiah Burridge. Well, thank you for tuning in to Depends on How You Look at It. Today on the show, I'm going to be playing an interview I did with Doug Gooden. He's a pastor out in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and he's really been associated with the New Covenant Theology Movement. We have a really wonderful conversation and talk about the differences between New Covenant Theology and traditional Covenant Theology and even dispensationalism. So I encourage all of my Covenant Theology brothers and sisters to listen closely, and if you have objections, send them to me, and I think Doug would be happy to come on again and talk it out. He's a really fun guy. I enjoyed every moment with him, and I am honored that he was on my show. So I hope you enjoy this episode about New Covenant Theology. Well, today on Depends on How You Look at It, I'm honored to have my friend Doug Gooden on the show. Doug is a pastor of Front Range Alliance Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Doug, don't let me do it. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry? I know we have in common that we're both from St. Louis, but you're in Colorado now. I am, yes. Uh, and actually, to be more specific, uh, we're both from Baldwin, Missouri, yes. a uh, suburb of St. Louis that most people <laughs> probably haven't ever heard of. It's a little bitty uh, town. Uh, it's kind of funny. People who are not from St. Louis maybe don't realize how many little municipalities there are in the suburbs with their own police department, their own fire departments, and all those kind of things. Kind of fascinating. Anyway, I grew up there. I uh, was born in 1970 and uh, lived there. got married in 92 and lived until I was 29. I was pursuing a music career that was my uh, my love. And I Anybody who's watching this will see all of your guitars in the background there. And I must admit, uh, in our pre-show conversation, I was admiring them, maybe a little crossing over into Envy. I don't know. But anyway, um, I was Good pursuing thing it's music. audio-only podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it right? Well, yeah. if you are, you are listening, can just envision, if you are an electric guitar player, he's got everything on the wall that you'd want to have. So uh, I'm a little, little jealous. Anyway, I digress. Uh, yeah, so I was pursuing music career, and uh, the Lord called me pretty starkly into pastoral ministry, and I enrolled in seminary, and that soon found me here in Colorado Springs in 1999, and I've been pastoring at Front Range Alliance Church ever since. Awesome. Yes, uh, I'm very blessed with guitars. I will not, I will not lie about that. Um, I do use them for God's glory, and I. As soon as this trial of bone marrow transplant recovery is over, I want to get back to playing worship music in church and or doing something of the sort. Um, I've been out of out of that for about a year now because of the struggle, but um, my hands have come back to me. Chemo really did a mm. a gnarly thing to my hands with all the pins and needles feeling, but they're sure. back. So I want to want to glorify God again through music. Um, you know, Doug, I came across your work through Cross to Crown podcast. Um, you want to tell us about that before I totally jump into the subject of New Covenant theology? Sure. So, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, actually a little longer than that, uh, I always had this, um, w w once I was called to ministry, I had this desire to train other pastors for ministry. My experience was more in the traditional um, seminary, 
went to Covenant Theological Seminary and then finished up out here in Colorado at a little seminary called New Geneva. Um, but, you know, they were, uh, most of these students were there full time and they weren't pastoring full time. I was pastoring full time. And uh, so the kinds of questions I was asking the professors were a little bit different, I noticed, from the kinds of questions these, uh, you know, academic academicians were, were asking. And uh, so along the way, I thought I'd like to someday train pastors in the local church and kind of get away from the uh, removed academy, if you will. So uh, back in 2010, we started this ministry called Cross to Crown Ministries, and one of the ministry uh, centers. One of the one of the uh, aspects of it is our New Covenant School of Theology. So we actually do have a seminary there. Uh, it's it's a separate 501c3 organization from our church. It's, it comes under the Cross to Crown umbrella, but it really is uh, a partnership with our church. So uh, if you come to our school, you're going to get immersed in uh, in pastoral ministry, real the hard things of ministry, not just the academics. You know, we everyone who becomes a pastor lo- loves to teach. That's why we're in the pastoral ministry. Uh, but this gives you a real taste for the harder things. So Across the Crown is the parent organization. We do some book publishing and uh, some of that kind of stuff. And uh, so our podcast is just another extension of Cross to Crown Ministries, where we talk about theology and and Christian manhood and a variety of things that matter to me. Yes, there's there's a variety of subjects. Um, it's not just total um, deep in the water covenant theology stuff. There's been just how to how to be a husband, how to be the man of your household, what what qualifies an elder. There's a lot of series he's done in uh, that those kind of things that I've really appreciated, especially with going through a cancer journey and losing kind of the manhood of I, I lost all my energy to do chores and take care of things men take care of. So it was really uplifting series on how to find uh, how to find what the Bible says about being a man. So I, I, I encourage you to check out the Cross to Crown podcast for all those reasons. So today we're going to be talking about New Covenant Theology. And we'll get into exactly what that is. I'm going to let Doug explain that. But, you know, I was heavily studying covenant theology, as in the traditional paedo-baptist covenant theology, and I was really becoming convinced of some of the claims. Yet there was some issues I couldn't find answers for, and and that's how I discovered new covenant theology, or sometimes we uh, dumb it down to NCT for short. And I was really blown away by how much I believed but never knew there was an actual category for so, you know, I'm, I'm convinced of the basics of Reformed theology as far as Calvinism, you know, effectual grace and election, things of that sort, substitutionary atonement. You know, I was raised dispensationalist, and I found my way out of that straight into Reformed thinking, like most young men do. <laughs> yeah, but I no longer believe there's this large distinction between Israel and the church. However, when it came to traditional covenant theology, there were all these beliefs that lined up where I was at. But then all these beliefs about the Mosaic law that I couldn't fully get behind. And my first issue was this tripart division of the Mosaic law that the Bible doesn't seem to make, as in the Mosaic law is is civil, ceremonial, and uh, moral, and the moral is eternally abiding and things of that sort. And, And of course, you can guess my next issue was the Sabbath, both the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of 1689 make the Sabbath a binding law on the New Covenant believer. Yet most Reformed people I know live exactly like I do on Sunday afternoons. You know, they go out to eat, they mow their lawn. So I, I couldn't fully consider myself a covenantal guy 
when I talked to other covenantal guys because I wasn't affirming these things. And I, I could never convince myself of pedo-baptism either. I tried so hard to be convinced. I, I had so many friends try to really convince me of this. I can't, I can't fit, you know, even with the, the continuing of the covenants, it just, it didn't work for me. And the household argument, every, every household example I looked at could be picked at, and there was no, just no definite, there was an infant there. And it, that just wasn't good enough for me. Um, in fact, most of the households rejoiced with the new believer. And it, it was hard for me to import infant baptism into that. But, you know, we're not talking about pedo baptism today, but I wanted to give uh, my listeners a little bit of my journey in in and out of covenant theology, how I'm kind of in it, kind of out of it. A lot of my friends are covenant guys, but I'm this odd mix of something, and I think it's new covenant theology. So, Doug, what exactly is new covenant theology? Where does it differ from what I've been talking about? Yeah, I get asked this all the time, as you can imagine, and uh, if you fully embrace the label, you're going to get asked this all the time, too. It's uh, it's funny, dispensational folks tend to look at us as basically a, a subset of covenant theology, and the mm-hmm. name kind of contributes to that. They, oh, you're you're the newer version of uh, covenant <laughs> theology, and for any of my astute, uh, uh, your astute covenant theology uh, listeners, so they look at us as a newer administration of the one covenant theology. Somebody will understand what that means. That's funny. Um, but we're not. We're not. Uh, we're, we, we set ourselves apart from covenant theology. Co- covenant theologians look at us basically in the same camp as dispensationalism, just with a, a, a few tweaks here and there. And we say, well, no, we are distinct from both of you. Both of you have some aspects of biblical revelation correct, but you have some aspects that are incorrect, and where you're wrong, it's significantly wrong, and it's all based on presuppositions. Uh, the way I tend to describe this to our students is uh, covenant theology. They have a, a favorite metaphor for the uh, the covenant of grace, and, and we can get into that. I'm sure we will at some point here, but this idea that uh, what began in the garden was an acorn, And this is God's covenant with mankind, and it expands, 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 expands all the way through to the new covenant in Christ, and they would see all of the things in between as the expansion of this acorn growing into an oak tree. So there's great continuity in covenant theology. Dispensationalism is almost the exact opposite of that. They look at the Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant as apples and oranges. Uh, again, this is my metaphor, not theirs, but but they're so distinct. Uh, the church and Israel are completely separate. There's really uh, no significant relationship. The laws, everything's different, apples and oranges. We look at the relationship between the old and the new as a caterpillar to butterfly. When you see a butterfly, it's it's gorgeous, it flies, it's free, it's beautiful, all those things. And if you didn't see it happen, you wouldn't necessarily know that it began as the caterpillar. You wouldn't you would understand that. Uh, it's got the basic DNA there, but it's a when we look at them, a caterpillar and butterfly are two very very different creatures. So the 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 old covenant foretold and typified and promised all these wonderful things. Jesus and the new covenant fulfills all of those. And uh, the old covenant, you crawled along and limped along, and now we can fly. That's how I like to describe it. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, you know, one of the main, uh, really, the grounding idea of covenant theology is this idea of the covenant of works and grace. And uh, on the surface, it's it's beautiful, and I'll I'll get into that in one of my other points. But 
I think one of the second strongest assumptions within covenant theology is their trifold, tripartite, threefold division of the Mosaic law. And, you know, I, I really, I don't mean to sound crass or anything, but I don't see any biblical evidence for that. I, do, do you believe it's better to see the law as one whole unit? Isn't that how NCT sees it? Yeah, and more importantly, it's how the Bible sees it. Uh, we as theologians impose upon the Scripture these divisions, but the Bible itself doesn't do that. Sure, there are different words like statutes and ordinances and that kind of thing, but that's the intent is not to say there's this trifold division. Now, for anybody who maybe is unfamiliar, this is this is crucial. Uh, getting back to your earlier question. The covenant theology folks would say that the, the the Ten Commandments are God's eternal moral revelation. And they get there out of all the other laws in the Old Covenant, they get there by this threefold division that you're talking about, which incidentally didn't start uh, until Thomas Aquinas. Uh, so the church was a thousand years old before someone articulated it this way. But basically, you've got the uh, the ceremonial law. All those laws of the priesthood and sacrifices and so on. And we all agree those are not uh, binding on us as Christians because Jesus was the fulfillment. He's the Lamb of God and he was the temple and all that kind of stuff. Incidentally, dispensationalists don't all agree with that because they would see a future uh, reconvening of Israel where the yes. sacrifices will continue. So they would not see Jesus as the fulfillment of those things the way that you and I do, at least the old school dispensationalists. I want to be fair, most dispensationalists today are not, um, they wouldn't see the the future temple sacrifices as atoning in any sense. But anyway, I digress. So you've got the ceremonial sacrifices that are ceremonial laws that everyone agrees Jesus fulfilled. Then you've got the civil laws, which were for Israel as a nation. Well, since Israel is not God's nation any longer, according to covenant theology, uh, Jesus fulfilled those, ended those, and we're not under those either. Again, dispensationalism would say, no, Israel is still bound by those laws. That leaves what they call the moral law, and that is the Ten Commandments. So again, just the, the civil which is for the nation, the ceremonial, which is the priesthood, and so on. But what's left when you remove all those is this moral law they call the Ten Command or the Ten Commandments, which they call the moral law. And they just assume, without any biblical warrant, in my opinion, they just assume that the Ten Commandments are the eternal law of God that continues. And we don't see Jesus, we don't see the apostles, we don't see anybody in the scripture dividing the old covenant law into those three sets. It's the whole law of Moses. It's it's all or nothing as far as I can tell. Totally agree. And I, I started to, to question that because to my logical mind, I was drawn to covenant theology because it it makes sense. Like when you when you hear uh, someone like Ligon Duncan give a whole seminar on it, which is what I I did, I'm like this is great. This is this makes sense. And then, but like when you start reading, again, when you start reading the Bible, the text and covenant to covenant from Abraham to Moses, uh, all to David to the new covenant, it doesn't seem as clean and tightly wound as the way the textbook of systematic theology by Burkhoff says it is or something like that. Um, you know, to talk about dispensationalism for one second, uh, it is interesting that they do believe that all those things are coming back, and that instead of the New Covenant fulfilling all those things, it's like the church is this stopping point for Israel 
and the, the, the prophecy clock has been stopped is, is usually what I hear from a lot of modern prophecy teachers. But I was reading guys like Ryrie, um, MacArthur, uh, an older guy. Um, oh, what is his name? He worked at DTS. I think he was the president for a long time, and I can't think oh, of his Schaefer? name now. Louis Schaefer. Schaefer? Yeah. Yes. So I was reading the old guys when I was a dispensationalist, and that's what you articulated is how exactly I would have articulated it. But I know dispensationalism has made some improvements, but uh, the whole sacrifices in the millennium thing is still a interesting talking point, which uh, there will be an episode about on my podcast coming up very soon, believe it or not. Um, but since we're talking about the Ten Commandments, you know, this is this is the summary of the moral law according to covenant theology. If that's true, then that means the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath or remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, that means that's binding on new covenant believers. And this is a belief and usually a staunch belief within covenant theology uh, circles. How does new covenant theology view the Sabbath commandment? The Sabbath commandment obviously is part of the Ten Commandments, and we do not believe that Christians are under the Ten Commandments in any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ten Commandments are unique. They are, you know, they are never given in the Scripture. They're never given to any other nation. Nowhere does God say, Philistines, you need to be submitting to the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say, Egyptians, you need to submit to the Ten Commandments. It is the heart and soul of God's covenant with Israel. Not with America, not with England, not with the church. It's the heart and soul of his covenant with Israel. And since that covenant is over, then the heart of that covenant also uh, goes by the wayside. It would be similar to thinking about our constitution in America. Uh, we have a constitution that is the core. Every All the laws that derive in our, in our uh, nation have to derive from the constitution. They have to be consistent with that. They're not supposed to contradict uh, of course, there's all kinds of debate and, and battles today about <laughs> what's unconstitutional or not, but everyone agrees in principle that the Constitution is the heart of all the lawmaking in our nation. Well, that's what the Ten Commandments were. If you stopped being a U.S. citizen and went and became a citizen of another nation, well, you would no longer be bound by the Constitution of the United States, because that's not your law anymore. It's not your Constitution. Same thing. If you're not Israel under the Old Covenant, then you're not bound by it. So, ergo, uh, the Fourth Commandment is no more binding on you and me than any of the other commandments. Uh, But we tend to treat the Sabbath as a unique situation all of us do. Uh, Covenant theologians are terribly inconsistent with their view of the Sabbath. I agree. They uh, so I, I had a seminary professor who was just beating this beating this horse, um, you know, to creation ordinance. He goes back to Genesis, the seventh day God rested, the seventh day God rested, and just pounded that home. You cannot remove the Sabbath. And I knew that I was uh, in a Reformed uh, Covenant seminary, and I wasn't all the way there. And I tried not to be a pain in anybody's side, but he just beat it so much. That I finally raised my hand and said then why do we not celebrate the Sabbath on the seventh day? Because you have just insisted that it's a creation ordinance. Well, God says very plainly he rested on the seventh day, and Moses grounded the Sabbath law in that statement that it's on the seventh day. Where do you get the right, where does the church get the right to move that to the first day? Well, it's the Lord's day. 
I said, yep, I agree. The Bible says <laughs> something about the Lord's Day. Where does the Bible ever co- co- uh, call the Lord's Day the Sabbath or the Sabbath the Lord's Day? It doesn't. It's all based on presupposition. In this case, the Seventh-day Adventists at least are consistent, right? They're saying we're going to keep the Sabbath on the seventh day. I was just about to say that. <laughs> they, <laughs> and they, they, have you, a good, they have a fair critique absolutely. Of, of that. Absolutely. And then as you brought up, then the, the, the law for the Jews says— don't do any work. We've made it all about worship. Charles Spurgeon loves Spurgeon, but he talked about the Sabbath as a day of worship. The Bible doesn't actually call the Sabbath day a day of worship. It is a day to not work. And it's very important to understand why God gave Israel the Sabbath. If you go back and read Exodus 31, he lays it out very plainly. There he says, Just as I have set you, Israel, I've set you apart from all other nations. You are holy to me. So the Sabbath is a sign that you you are going to keep this day separate from all the other days as a sign of how I've made you holy, how I've set you apart. So the, the idea was for the Jew, don't work on Sabbath. Set that day apart. Rest on that day to remember God set us apart. It serves a very similar function to my wedding ring. My wedding ring says I'm committed to my wife until the day we die. Uh, if if I took the wedding ring and hawked it at a pawn shop or something and then bought a, a new guitar with it to hang on my <laughs> wall, like you have, you know, if I leave this podcast, I'm all jealous of your guitars and I sell my wedding ring so I can buy a guitar and I come home, my wife is going to be rightfully upset saying, how could you treat this sign of our covenant so casually. Well, that's what the Jews did when they broke the covenant, when they broke the Sabbath, rather. They were saying, oh, we don't really care that you, God, have set us apart, so we're not going to set this day apart. And that's why God said, oh, yeah, you treat my sign like that, and I will put you to death. The Sabbath is a sign of the old covenant. He says that repeatedly in Exodus 31. Well, we're not under that covenant. You and I are not under the Mosaic law. We're not under the Mosaic covenant. So I don't need to keep the Sabbath in any way. Then you move into Hebrews 4. It was a sign of the rest. It was a, it was a picture of the rest that we have in Christ. And so if you want to go that direction, we do keep the Sabbath as we rest in Christ and rest from our works and are set apart in Christ. That's that's how NCT sees it. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of the guys, and I think maybe you've been one of the guys that have said this that I've listened to, is uh, I, it's not we don't really like the word abolished as much as fulfilled because Christ fulfilled and he 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 is our Sabbath rest. We don't have to work our way into God's grace that's been given to us freely through His substitutionary atonement, uh, and that's that is. Um, and if you want to rest on Sunday, great. <laughs> I mean, I take a nap on Sunday. Don't get me you know, don't get me wrong. But if my wife and I want to go out to eat, or I have done yard work and things like that, I, and again, I, I know pastors that talk about, oh, I, I can only mow my grass on Sunday. It's the only day I got. But then they'll get up and talk about the Sabbath is to be kept holy, and it's like, well, and the, the confessions is what really threw me off. And I interviewed a few of my confessional friends on my show, and I, I, I asked them, what is what does the, the confession mean when it says recreation? And it really just depends on who you talk to, what recreation is. You know, well, it might be relaxing for you to sit on your mower. Well, to some, it's it's <laughs> it's not it's not relaxing to me. It's hot and awful. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it 
it really came down to a um, subjective who you talk to kind of thing. And what blew me away is we wouldn't treat for rightly so we have new Testament word on this. We wouldn't treat any church member, any professing believer in Christ at our church uh, in a good way. If they were breaking any other of the nine of the 10 commandments in a very open and, you know, unrepentant way, right? And everybody sins of course, but what I mean is just living in open adultery or openly stealing and this, that, and the other. Uh, but, People that, uh, hey, you know, after church, we got our kids' soccer game, or, or sometimes they skip church for their kids' soccer game. I have never seen anybody church disciplined for that, ever. Um, supposedly, you know, a long time ago, they used to do that in America, but nobody really wants to do that anymore uh, because of freedom and all that. But it, it just felt very inconsistent to me, and I felt there had to be an answer. And as I read through the New Testament, there's two or three passages that are openly talking about the Sabbath is a, is a shadow of what Christ has done, and let no one judge you on days or festivals or moons, and no one let no one disqualify you. Uh, and then Romans 14 was my, is my favorite because it one you know you regard one day as another. He regards this day like that. Let keep keep the day for the Lord. Whatever you do is, is the bottom line. And it just and I, I've seen my reformed friends really try to. Get around those, and I'm just not satisfied with like he's clearly talking about the Sabbath. Why? Well, it's there's many different Sabbaths. No, I really think he's talking about the Sabbath. Um, you know, well, like you're saying, they have all the answers to those questions. <laughs> but what we've got to get to is the basic starting place. That that's where the real core difference is. The the presupposition yes. that the Ten Commandments are the eternal revelation of God's righteousness. If that's true, then we have to figure out how to keep the Sabbath in mm -hmm. light of those passages you're referring to, because we have those passages, but our starting place is we cannot give up the Sabbath because it's part of the eternal moral law of God. I don't see where that assumption is in any way established in the scripture. So I can say, no, that was part of the old covenant. It is set aside when Jesus comes with the new covenant, and now I seek the New Testament to to understand how to please God. But that's it's, it comes down to the presuppositions. The people you're referring to, they're convinced we have to keep the Sabbath because it's in the Ten Commandments. You know, I never have gotten a good answer for it, and I, I've heard this talked about a lot that um, I think, I don't remember if it was Douglas Wilson or one of those real heavy covenant guys that really is about— uh, the eternal abiding moral law, was talking about how Adam had these written on his heart, had the Ten Commandments written on his heart. And my question for people that believe that is, is like, did Adam know what false witness was? Did Adam know what murder was yet? I mean, and did Adam keep Sabbath? Because I certainly don't see that in the garden narrative. And and the best answer is, that, well, God rested. But I'm like, but did Adam he was told to tend the garden. He wasn't told to rest on the seventh day. And so I, I, I've, and then that means every Gentile nation, every, every person after Adam had those commandments written on their heart. Now, I believe there is a somewhat eternal moral law of God, but I don't think it is summed up completely in the Ten Commandments. I think there's other things that are outside of the Ten Commandments that Jesus even talks about uh, that are more important. But, uh, you know, one of the main objections, as we're talking about, from our covenant friends is that NCT is antinomian, which is a, a big word for anti-law. We're lawless. Um, is, is that a fair charge to you, Doug? 
Uh, yeah, it's one of their favorite charges against us. <laughs> uh, and and to be fair, we've had some who call themselves NCT who pretty much deserve that label. Uh, thankfully, most of us have tried to set ourselves apart from that group. So it all depends on definitions. If uh, for a covenant guy, the law, again, is the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And so if that is the standard of righteousness, then yes, we are antinomian because we are saying we're not under the Ten Commandments. We are anti-trying to bring the Ten Commandments as the eternal moral law of God. If by antinomian you mean the other word you used, lawless, absolutely not. Paul himself, who was the first New Covenant theologian, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion, unless you count Jesus, um, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he makes a distinction there that's very, very important. He's on one hand, he says, when I'm among Jews, I act like a Jew. And then he explains what he means. When I'm with those who have the law, I act as though under the law, though not under the law myself. That is mm-hmm. a fascinating statement. Here's the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee, the, the student of Gamaliel, the, the guy who was on the on the first you know, fast track to the top position in Judaism tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, he says, I am not under Moses, but when I'm around other Jews, I act like I am. Then he goes and says, when I'm among Gentiles, those without the law, I act like them, meaning he doesn't keep the law of Moses. He doesn't worry about it. But he says, be careful, don't misunderstand me. I'm not without law. I'm still under the law of God. So he's making a distinction between the law of Moses and the law of God. There is a law of God that the law of Moses was an expression of in the Old Covenant. Now that expression has stopped, and now what he calls the law of Christ is the New Covenant expression of the law of God. So we are not lawless. We are not without law. I would argue that we have the entire New Testament that is replete with commands. Take one for those of us who are married. Love your wife as Christ loves the church. I'll spend the rest of my life. It's not a ten commandment. (laughs) I'll spend the rest of my life trying to fulfill that commandment, to obey that command. That's not an option. It's not a suggestion. He didn't say, hey, you know, your marriage will be better if. No, this is this is a law given by an apostle of Jesus Christ. Husbands, love your wives. So I need to strive to obey that law. And as you said, it's not a Ten Commandment, which brings up another interesting uh, interaction I had in seminary class. <laughs> um, so it, when, you, when you start with the presupposition that the Ten Commandments are the eternal moral law of God, these guys will argue that all the other laws in the Scripture have to derive from those ten. Right? Do you get yeah, that? Yeah, so, I've heard. So, oh, yeah, I've heard that a lot. It, it's yeah, it's, I mean, the, it's all it's over the, the birthplace of how it's expanded in the New Testament. Right. And even the rest of the Old Testament, they would say all those laws flow out of the 10 because this is the core. So again, same professor or same school, different professor, but uh, uh, he was just driving that point home. And I said, so where is the uh, in the Ten Commandments? Where is the uh, command to submit to the governing authorities? Yeah. Guess which one he said was the foundation for submit to governing authorities. I've listened to your podcast, so I know he said, honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother, because David was the king, and he is described somewhere, there's an allusion to him being the father of the nation. 
again, they're just forced into what that. What an extrapolation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're forced into that because of their starting presuppositions. So we're not antinomian. We're not anti-law. We don't teach the commands of Christ as suggestions. We are saying, no, he's the Lord. He's the king. He gives commands. You as his subject are obligated to obey them. We just don't see the, the law of Moses as our law. Right. And I think we'd all agree that even within the law of Moses, you have the heart of God in many of those laws. But there was a lot of things that were designated um, a planned obsolescence. Mm -hmm. they They were intended to expire, to fulfill what their intended purpose was to be. Uh, and I would argue that the Sabbath is one of those things. It's funny you brought up 1 Corinthians 9 because I brought that up on my Logos software because I was going to go there, but of course you did. I just want to read that real quick, ESV, what he's talking about. This is Paul speaking. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. But to those outside the law, became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So Paul is rejecting the old covenant law and embracing the the new covenant law of Christ. So it, it is like like Doug said, Paul was a very zealous uh, Jew before his conversion. I mean, this is, this is the student here of the tribe of Benjamin and all that, and not under the law. Mm-hmm. So now I I guess how would a covenant guy read this? Would he go, well, he's about the ceremonial and civil? Yes. Everywhere the New Testament says we're not under law, they always relegate that to the civil and ceremonial. They have to. That's their presupposition. He can't (laughs) be talking about the Ten Commandments because that's the eternal moral law of God. Therefore, just by assumption, the law we're not under has to be civil and ceremonial. They'll do the same thing in Galatians, same thing in Hebrews, all the way through Romans, all of it. Yeah, and I— I'm blanking on the verse, but there, I think there's even one where he talks about the tablets of stone being a ministry of death. Yep, Second Corinthians three. 2 Corinthians three. What else could he be talking about with the tablets of stone? Well, so the other way they'll handle this is they will make a very sharp theological distinction between justification and sanctification. So when it describes the law, and there, like you said, the tablets of stone have to be the Ten Commandments, there, when he describes that as a ministry of death and condemnation and the letter kills and all of that, it is if you are looking to the law for justification. And, And so if you think you can be declared righteous by keeping the Ten Commandments, they would say, no, 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 no. But when Paul talks about sanctification, he would never say, we are free from the law. So you see that, again, their starting place is the Ten Commandments. Uh-huh. So now whenever the Bible says we're not under that law or it says something bad about the law, they have to either say, well, he's not talking about the Ten Commandments or he is only talking about justification, not sanctification. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, that, that does. It just doesn't feel, again, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but it doesn't feel exegetically great there. Uh, and that's just not the way it just comes across in the text. I mean, it just Paul is saying this is this was a ministry of death, and now we have, you know, we're we're in a, it's a new, we have a new covenant. The new covenant is so much greater than the old. For if the old would have been faultless, there wouldn't be you know, Hebrews doesn't doesn't need a new covenant. And like, well, if the old covenant was faultless, or I'm sorry, yeah, if the old covenant had fault, then it had fault, uh, and then so I. But I, I guess oh, but Isaiah, would... you got to come on, man. Come on, man. You just got to 
you got to realize he's only talking about justification okay. when he says that. <laughs> but when we talk about sanctification, of course we are to obey God's eternal moral standard of righteousness. How dare you say we don't? I remember asking my covenant friend, and he's a, he's a 1689 guy, and uh, I love him to death, but we sharply disagree about the Sabbath. He's a very uh, big Sabbatarian guy. And I, I respect the heck out of it because it's what a commitment. But um, I, I asked him about Acts 15. And I said, because I, I, I was kind of making the argument that I, I feel the law is a one unit and we're not under that anymore. And I said, I, I get this from reading, obviously, the New Testament, but Acts 15 is directly dealing with Gentiles, dealing with Judaizers and things of that, that sort. And the letter they write to him is, hey, we've figured out you don't need to be justified by, or you don't need to follow the law of Moses, um, abstain from sexual immorality, blood, this, that, and the other. Uh, and I think it traces back to the Levit- Levitical laws of the foreigner and the land if they, to get make a theological discussion. But they, they talk about the law of Moses as one unit in the letter to the Gentiles, and they give them a very small list of things to follow. And Sabbath isn't one of those things. And my friend responded to me, well, they would have no need to write to them because it's already written on their heart. Right. And I, I didn't know what to – I'm, I'm, that's an assumption that I really can't deal with other than I don't believe that. Shouldn't sexual morality not – shouldn't that be written on their heart as wrong too? <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. And that's why I say – Idols, idols, that's the one. Yes. yes. The, well, that's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other – well, then why would they write to them about idols? So, yeah. It, it, so presuppositions drive our interpretation of everything. Oh, yeah. So, as soon as you settle in on the Ten Commandments are the ultimate revelation of God's righteousness, then you you have to, we, you know, we have cognitive, cognitive dissonance. We have to now force everything else into that it's mold. Yeah. And that's just how it works. So, he doesn't have to prove anything. Well, this is what they felt like they needed to deal with, but they really didn't need to even list those four because it's already written in their hearts, but they're trying to tell Christians not to do this, that kind of thing. You get into all those gymnastics uh, mentally, but it all starts with the uh, presupposition, and I just don't see that in the Scripture anywhere. No, and of course, nine out of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. They're they're wonderful ways of living, uh, but they're also repeated in more of a a newer context, too, because— Paul tells children, uh, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is the first commandment with a promise. And he's writing to, uh, is, is that in Ephesians? Mm-hmm. Ephesians 6. Yeah, it's Ephesians. You're good, Doug. You're a good pastor, man. You got those locked in. <laughs> I, that's, I, you, you might be jealous of my guitars, but I'm jealous of that skill right there. <laughs> um, but it, it, it takes on a fuller context, because now we have this new covenant family, and I'm not trying to sound like a pedo baptist here, but takes on a newer thing other than obey your parents or you'll get stoned, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another objection I hear, and I, I actually don't know what to do with this one, so I am excited to hear your, your answer for this, is that without the moral law from the Mosaic era, which I guess they pick and choose what's moral in certain places, but we don't know what to prohibit anymore in the New Covenant. And for example, the New Testament doesn't speak of some of the detailed sexual sins that the mosaic law does yet we'd all agree that things like bestiality and incest are wrong and awful and sinful and to be repented of 
what would be the basis of understanding and believing and holding to that if the Mosaic law has been fulfilled and we're not under it and the New Testament doesn't directly address it? <laughs> yes, bestiality. It's uh, time for a commercial break, I think, isn't I'm it? sorry. Yeah. I, I, just, <laughs> I read that one all the time. Yeah, no, it's it's common and it's understandable. Uh, you know, I, I get that, why we're asked that kind of question, because you're right, the New Testament doesn't address those specifically. So the the bestiality question is pretty simple, I think. Jesus is the one who brought us back to the original creative design for marriage. Mm-hmm. One man, one woman, no goats. <laughs> right? I mean, he here's the original design. So simple. A man and a woman. There's no room for having sex with anything or anyone else. It's a man and a woman. So uh, you don't need more detail than that. I shouldn't right. have sex with anyone who's not my wife. That means I can't take the dog. It's just, it's just not that hard when it comes to, uh, incest or to bestiality. Um, and I, in addition to that, I push back on my covenant friends and say, okay, I've answered you. Now you answer me. Is polygamy a sin or not? Ah, that's a great question. Cause it was totally permitted in the mosaic era. It was not illegal. It, no. when David committed sin with Bathsheba, it was not because he was going to take her as another wife. It was because she was already married to somebody else. If she were single, he would have had every legal right to take her as another wife. In fact, when God rebukes David, he says, God himself says, I gave you many wives. Yes. And if that were not enough, I would have given you more. So I don't think any covenant theologian is going to argue that God gave David sin by giving him multiple wives. In the Old Covenant, there are provisions in Exodus and Deuteronomy. When you take another wife, you must treat her this way. When you take a a third wife, a fourth wife, you treat her this way. You're not allowed to deny the first wife conjugal rights and and shelter and clothes and food and all that. So it's it's, it's in the law. It's there. So it certainly was not sin in the sense of violating the Old Covenant. Now, you could argue kind of like divorce when when Jesus rebukes Moses or rebukes the Pharisees and and says he gave you because of the hardness of your heart he gave you this writ but originally it was not that way there again you have this it wasn't God's original intent but he it was legal in the old covenant to send her away with a writ of divorce so those those things get complex but we just want to right. not go beyond what the scripture clearly says Anyway, did I dodge the long enough? We can move on to another. To- no, okay. Yeah, okay. Um, no, I, uh, I, I incest. I, I'm sorry to hit you with these gross questions, but I have <laughs> read these over and over again. So I want. I'm trying to treat my objectors here fairly on what they're asking. No, and again, they are fair questions, but I think the, the bestiality is easy. I would okay. what I already said. The incest is much harder, in my opinion. I agree. We had uh, one early author in New Covenant Theology that wrote a book that was a very good book. I'm not going to mention his name or the book because I really don't want people to get it, but uh, (laughs) it was very good in many ways. But he went on to say, if incest were not illegal, it would not be sinful. And I remember thinking, oh, this book is so good, but why? Why would you even say that? Even if you believed uh-huh. it, why would you say it out loud? Because yeah. that's what everyone, you know, that, that instantly became what NCT believes. So here, I believe there's a clear biblical answer, 
but it is is difficult. So we talked earlier, First Corinthians nine, right? There is a law of God mm-hmm. that is not only the law of Moses. In other words, uh, think about the image that that Jesus taught. He said the 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 two great commandments: love God, love your neighbor. Right, and that's not even in the actual ten ten words specifically like that. Right, it can be summed up, but it's not though. Those are in, ones in Leviticus. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But he says these are the most important commandments of all, and then he says the law and the prophets hang on these two. Mm-hmm. Now, covenant guys turn that around, and they say law, love God, love man summarizes the ten commandments. That is not what Jesus said. He said, on these two, love God, love man, hang the law and the prophets. So think of it this way. You got a a hook on your wall. And it's a two-pronged hook. And on those hooks hang the law and the prophets. On those two hooks, love God, love man, hang. That's the word he used. That's the imagery. Hang the law and the prophets. What he's saying is, the fundamental requirement of God is love him and love others. Here's how you did it in the old covenant. You obeyed the Ten Commandments. You obeyed all the laws of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on. Now, when Jesus came, he took that garment off the hooks and replaced his covenant, put his covenant, his law on those hooks. Now, how do we obey the, the command to love God and love man? We do it by obeying the law of Christ. Yes. Okay? So all that to say, to illustrate, there is this overarching law of God that does transcend everything else. Okay? I I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, on these two hang all the others. So that's my starting place. Loving God. So now the question is, how do I love God? And how do I love man? Well, we have the New Testament. But here's another, another key thing from the Old Testament. In... Uh, Leviticus 18, God lays out all of these horrific immoralities, Mm -hmm. offering your children to Moloch, homosexuality, and in that he lists um, incest, okay? In, In Leviticus 20, he lists almost exactly the same sins. So why? Is he just being redundant? No. In Leviticus 20, he is saying, these are the commands I'm giving to you, O Israel. Do not commit incest. Do not commit fornication, adulteries, uh, homosexuality, and all that. In chapter 18, he's describing what all the pagan nations were doing, and he says, this is why I spew them out of the land. Mm-hmm. Catch the distinction. Yeah. Leviticus 20 is laws given specifically to Israel. Leviticus 18, he's saying, I am going to punish the Canaanites for committing these atrocities. So they didn't have a written revelation in Canaan's land that we know of, that God said, I hate these things. Nevertheless, God was going to spew them out of the land for committing them. So what that tells me is there are things that are reprehensible to God that transcend all of the revelation that we have, 
Well, that's that's not exactly the right way to say it. They transcend whether or not you have the written revelation. Mm-hmm. So when the Canaanites offered their sons and daughters to Moloch, even though they didn't have the written law, God hated that and he punished them for it. When they committed homosexual acts, even though they didn't have a written law against it, he hated it and he punished them for it. And when they committed incest, even though they didn't have a written law, it was part of the reason they spewed them, he spewed them out of the land. So I know this gets a little, if you're not looking at the text right now, it, it seems a little uh, thick maybe, but go back and read Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, and you'll see I'm casting out the pagan nations from this land because they commit these atrocities, and they didn't have it written down. So that's where I find the biblical warrant for saying that uh, incest is sin. So, and I don't, I really couldn't care less. I, I'm not dogmatic about it, but like young earth creationism and the whole Adam and Eve thing, Cain and his wife thing, like, was that okay? <laughs> uh, and that's why I said this is hard because right. what I just said to you is not hard. It's very clear to me. Yeah. What do we do with the early people? Their only options were. Uh, right. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm a young earth guy and I, I so believe I, I, I default to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe that the only human beings came from Adam and Eve. Therefore, the only option is that Cain married a relative. Um, well, yeah. a sister. Yeah, <laughs> that's, had the, to be. that's the only option. Uh, I don't know what to do with that. That's the bottom line. Yeah. And I, I think that is why. I say I default to the young earth, Adam and Eve are the the sole uh, procreation of the human race, but I'm slightly okay with other explanations. <laughs> like, you know, again, I'm not dogmatic because if I if I get to glory and God says, actually, it went like this, I'm going to go, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to go, I spent 40 years arguing because I'm not going to do that. You know, I just think there's more important topics. But I, I appreciate the men who do uh, talk, you know, uh, you know, debate modern science and things like that. But, um, you know, finally, Doug, I wanted to ask you about, and we'll, we're going to get out of the incest now. We're going to get to theology. Again. Thank you. You're like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, the grounding belief within covenant theology is the belief that Adam was given a covenant of works. And after he failed it and he transgressed that covenant, the covenant of grace was given to him. Uh, the belief is that the covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and finally with Christ in the New Covenant are actually just administrations of the one theological covenant of grace. The substance was the same throughout history, faith in the Messiah uh, and again, at, a, at a point in time, even though the human outworking differed from covenant to covenant. On the surface, it's a beautiful logical system. Um, but, and I'll admit one time I was sold on it, but I just started to read the Bible from covenant to covenant. There didn't seem to be any hint of forgiveness of sins and grace within the Noahic Abrahamic covenants. And it's like, there's grace. I don't want to say there, God wasn't gracious. Okay. I don't want to seem totally rigid, but I don't see the substance of what we have in the new covenant being administered in those covenants is what I'm saying. So it seems only within the prophecy of Christ and the new covenant do we really see grace and forgiveness of sins. So I guess my question starts with Adam. Do you believe Adam was under a covenant of works, a probation period, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says? No, there's no uh, biblical data 
that I can see anywhere to support such a claim. Now, even within the NCT camp, there is a, an ongoing debate about whether there was some kind of covenant with Adam. And I think that is a, an intramural debate. I, I don't think it matters for new covenant theology if you say yes or no to that. But what we all reject is the idea of this covenant of works because it's all based on assumption. And the assumption is God said to Adam, if you obey, I will give you eternal life. We're not told that. What we are told is if right. you disobey, I'll kill you. <laughs> Right? Yeah. That, that's what we're told. Don't eat of that fruit or you will die. On the day you eat of it, you will die. Mm -hmm. And covenant theology infers by presupposition that if there was a negative consequence, there must therefore be a positive promise. And that's all based on assumption. Mm -hmm. And so then, so, so now if that's the case, then Adam was, it was held out to him, obey and have eternal life, disobey and die. Then the question becomes, how long does Adam have to obey to inherit eternal life? One day, 10 days, 10 years, a thousand years, 10,000 years. I mean, his entire life needs to be obedient, right? No, 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 they would say. No, God established a probationary period, a time of testing. And if Adam would obey through that time of testing, then God would confer upon him eternal life. Well, all of that's based on presupposition. There's no hint in the Bible anywhere. All we have is disobey and you die. Right. Right. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And something that always confused me was uh, I, I hear this quote by O. Palmer, o. Palmer Robertson a lot. It's a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And I would ask, where was the blood in the covenant of works? And uh, well, it was the animal that was slain at, but I was like, but that was after the transgression and that's the covenant of grace. Right. What, where was the bond in blood with Adam and his eternal life probation? Right. <laughs> There's not. So I'm like, now, not that O. Palmer Robertson is the, like the deciding factor of what a covenant always has to be, but that is a very common quote that you, you hear from covenantal guys as trying to teach you about how this works. But if, if there was uh if that was there, it's it's definitely not in the garden narrative. Um, now, what do you do with the uh, the passage in Hosea where it says, "Like Adam, he transgressed the covenant"? I got I got to ring that objection. Yeah. Um, so there are three possible explanations as far as I can tell. Uh, the word Adam there is Adama, which is man. the Hebrew word for man, right? So it could be a proper name for Adam. And I want to I want to give full credit to that possibility. It. It is certainly possible that what God is doing is saying, these people broke the covenant just like Adam did. If that's the case, then we have to agree, yes, there was some kind of covenant God made with Adam. We are not told any of the terms. We're not told the stipulations. We're not told the blessings and cursings. We're not told if there's any blood. We're not told what the, about the probationary period. All we could say is, all right, there was some kind of covenant with Adam. Anything else would be speculation. Uh, the other two possibilities are that he could be describing man in general. Uh, just like men break covenants, you people here have broken the covenant. What's most likely to me is the third option. Uh, when Joshua led the people of Israel into the land of Canaan, one of the territories they conquered was Adamah. It's the same word, Adam, Adamah. And so I think he could be saying that now as uh, Israelites have taken over the land of Canaan, they broke 
God's covenant. They broke the old covenant. And God is using them as an illustration to say, just like they broke the covenant, you've broken the covenant and you're going to suffer the consequences. Now, I can't prove that. It's the problem with all the views here. None of us can prove any of it. Uh, but the best case scenario for the covenant theologian is there was some kind of covenant with Adam, but we can't conclude any details about it. Yeah, and I, again, I'm. This is one of those things. If I get to glory and God says no, it was definitely a covenant, I'm going to go okay. Yep. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't negate any principle of redemption. Uh, the redemption arc we just talked about. Right. Um, but I, I, like we've talked about in private, you know, Romans 5.18 says, you know, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so the one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Uh, you know, and it contrasts Adam's disobedience with Christ's obedience. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the covenant guys will go, okay, well, that's Christ is actually fulfilling the covenant of works along with the covenant of grace. And I'm okay, but why can't Paul just be comparing what condemned men to death and who raises men to life and, you know, and who raises men to life. Why can't he do that without there being this um, uh, detailed covenantal framework? Because he doesn't use, he doesn't use covenant in, in the passage at all. Um, Again, it's based on presupposition and, and some of the NCT guys, that's the same passage they're using to say there must've been a covenant because that correlation that the parallelism he uses between Adam and Jesus there must include a covenant, but their starting point is God is a covenant making God. And that's how he always interacts with human beings is through covenant. You mentioned Doug Wilson uh, a while back. He's the one that's made this point the strongest. He declares that every human being on planet earth for all time is under a covenant with God. So for unbelievers, they are still under the covenant of works. But everybody's under covenant because the starting assumption is the only way to have a relationship with God is via covenant. And I'm, you know, I'm from Missouri, like you, right? Show me. It's a show me. me state. Show me. <laughs> show me in the text anywhere where it says that man has to be in covenant with God. It, it just doesn't say that. That's, you know, uh, people uh, don't like when I say this. Some some people don't, but systematic theology has its place. It yep. is good to refute certain errors. Somebody denies the deity of Christ, it is good for us to put together all the passages in the scripture that talk about Jesus and show, no, he really is God. Mm-hmm. But it is not, it should not be the framework through which we read the Bible. The Bible is not given to us as a system of theology. It's given to mistake. us as a story of Jesus, and we need to read the story of Jesus as it unfolds. And one of the, pro- I don't, I have less problem with the covenant of works, frankly, than I do the covenant of grace. Same. Because if you're going to use Hebrews 6 and use Romans, fine. Okay. Let's say we agree there's a covenant of works. Show me then how we get to the covenant of grace. What passage are you going to go to for that? Right. Right. And um, that's where I'm in substantial agreement with my 1689 federalist friends hmm. who will say um, that because I, I learned recently, I didn't know this, that re- within Reformed Baptist theology, there's actually like two camps. Um, there's like a traditional 19th, 20th century or 19th century. And then uh, then there's like the 1689 federalism, which will say, no, 
the the covenants of the old of the Old Testament led up to the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace. They were not administrations of a covenant of grace made in the garden. And I am in substantial agreement with that because I don't see forgiveness of sins offered through the Davidic covenant or the Noahic covenant or uh, the Mosaic covenant, other than they brought the animals for atonement. But we know what that looked forward to. Mm-hmm. Hebrews makes it very clear they weren't forgiven through that. They, they were forgiven through a retroactive through what Christ would do for them in the future. Um, and I've got <clears throat> traditional Pado Baptist friends who actually argue that Christ was always the mediator, always the mediator, even before his incarnation. And I don't really understand how that works. And I actually think it goes against the Westminster because the Westminster talks about that Christ came to fulfill the covenant of grace and Anyone who was ever saved was saved retroactively through that. And I don't understand why we can't just let God be eternal and timeless and have his elect, his people, and let it be what it is and instead of overthinking it. And I, I think that's what I started to loathe about some of the systematic stuff is like you're overthinking every little detail to where now we're affecting Christology. Now we're saying Christ was the mediator even before his incarnation. Well, that doesn't make any sense because in uh, is it first or second Timothy? There's the man Christ Jesus who's our mediator because he became man. Right. <laughs> so like it, the incarnation wasn't just wasn't just a show off. Like it it did something. So I, well, I, I, I oh I'm sorry to buttress that point a little bit. Uh, Hebrews 11, you know, the hall of faith, all those yes. examples of faith and Abraham looking to a city that was not made by man, but made by God. At the end of that chapter, it says all of these died not having received the promise so that without us, no one would receive it. What I think he's saying there is, and this could introduce a whole different topic <laughs> of everything. What I think he's saying there is all of the pre Christ saints died and went to Hades and they stayed in Hades until the resurrection of Jesus. Okay. So you're one of those people. That's interesting. Uh, (laughs) I'm one of those people. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't meet many people that actually hold on to that. I I hear, I hear people just kick it around. So I I, I go on. This is interesting for me. Well, it makes the most sense of what you're arguing that they, they, God, was applying in promise form the atoning work of Christ. But because the sacrifice had not actually been made, Abraham had no access to heaven. Right. So Hades, in both the Hebrew and the Greek tradition, was in two compartments. Mm -hmm. And this makes sense of Jesus's parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Right. Abraham's bosom there, I don't believe is heaven. I believe it is the the uh, part Holding of Hades, chamber. <laughs> yes, that the saints went to, and the other side was the part where the uh, the wicked people went to, and there it's a holding place, uh, and and so Abraham had no access to the throne of God until the sacrifice had actually been made. So he's in the holding place, and it's pleasant, but it's not heaven, it's not glory. Jesus then took the captives with him. Ephesians 4, when he ascended to the high hill at the resurrection and and took and emptied out the the good Hades, if you will. Right. And unbelievers from both eras will stay in the the the, the tormentuous part of Hades until Til the, the final great judgment day. Right. right. I, I think, you know, that makes sense to me. And and I've always wondered what to do with the Old Testament saints because 
there's a many of places they expect to go to Sheol when mm-hmm. they die. And if you know, if you understand anything about Sheol, and hey, it's the place, the realm of the dead. Right. Uh, but like, did they get rescued after the cross? And there seems to be some passages in the New Testament that kind of allude to that, and maybe even more than allude. Uh, I've I've heard other explanations that whatever, uh, but it does seem like Christ did something. Uh, either during his three days uh, dead, or maybe you know after. At some point, they were they were, they got a moving trip, right? right. So, um, and I think that's in First or Second Peter uh, talks about that. But um, that's that's good, Doug. I like that. But yeah, it, I I don't I I was ne- I was not comfortable with saying Christ has always been the mediator in all the covenants because it's like, well, where did it promise forgiveness of sins? Where was Abraham promised forgiveness of sins? He was promised a land and a people, and you know redemption came through him, but he wasn't promised through that administration forgiveness of sins. So um, God laid those upon Christ. So and it, it it makes it weird. Like were they forgiven through their sacrifices that went like like it just feels icky to me, and I, I never liked it. I, I just. I, I, the whole Hebrews makes it very clear. These look forward to something. <laughs> right. In faith. So as they brought in faith, sacrifices in faith, right. The, 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 the Jew, the, the sincere penitent Jew who brought his animal sacrifice and believed that God would forgive his sins. Right. God took that faith and accepted that as a pointer toward the ultimate lamb. Now we don't know. I don't know at least how much they understood of the coming one. I think right. we, we get some indication they knew this wasn't the final story. But at any rate, they had faith. But again, we we, we got to be careful. Jesus, the man, this is a whole different topic too. <laughs> Jesus, the man, is not omnipresent and no. never was. In his deity, and this gets to your, I know you're yeah. a big Trinity guy and have a huge uh, hypostatic I mean, I, union time. I shouldn't say that so casually. I, everybody, every Christian's a huge Trinity guy, but I know that's a big, something you love to study and, and talk yes. about, but we got to keep those, those in mind in his divine nature. Of course, he's all the attributes of God in his mm-hmm. human nature. He wasn't around as Jesus of Nazareth. Right. And the temple. Uh, until he was born of the Virgin Mary, so we just we we can't let systematic theology drive our interpretations. Right, and we we talked in private. We don't have a whole heck of a lot of revelation about the second person of the Trinity before the incarnation. Um, I, I I'm a big angel of the Lord guy. I believe there's a really substantial case for that is the second person of the Trinity working with the history of Israel. I think it's beautiful. I think it works. Um, there's New Testament passages why I actually think that works too. I'm 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 of the I'm of the 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 club that likes the Jude manuscript difference that Jesus led a people out of Egypt and then destroyed those who didn't believe. Uh, mm. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, the, the ESV actually goes with that reading, and I'm I I'm like I think that's the right reading because mm. <laughs> you know the angel of the Lord led them right. So, um, but we don't know. But that that's really all we got. And the hands that that were nailed to the cross were created in time. Right. They were they were birthed. They were born. He was an embryo. He, everything we are, he assumed, because if he didn't assume everything, then something in us isn't redeemed. That was a was that I don't know if that's from Chalcedon or somebody said that, but um, he was everything we've ever been 
in our human state. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that was created. And I think sometimes um, we get overzealous about the Trinity and import the man Jesus back into the old covenant, and we cannot do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, and we just got to leave it at, we just, we can't because there's no revelation and we just don't want to create and be better theologians than God. I was, I liked your saying yesterday. Yeah. I appreciate that. And we, we can't read the human traits back into the divine either. Mm-hmm. That's The church has always maintained that distinction. I don't get it. I mean, I can't pretend to think I can understand how divine and human can be in one mm-hmm. person. I, I don't get it. But, but our salvation depends on Jesus being fully, entirely human. Right. He has to be that. And so as in his human attributes, he was a human and he died and he got hungry and he had to sleep and all that stuff. Yeah, I think I have a hard time trying to reconcile his human personality. Was that created mm-hmm. or was that assumed by the second person, the Trinity? Then you're getting into the heresy of uh, what's the the divine brain? Uh, yeah. Who? I'm, I'm forgetting all these long Greek names. I'm usually really good with this. My friend Sam, who's a Unitarian, would know very well what I'm talking about. But, um, Doug, I am so thankful you came on my show. Do you have any closing thoughts to uh, my listeners who might be either in the dispensational camp or the traditional covenant camp of don't write this off or read a book and, and you know, ask, ask good questions? I mean, do you have any closing thoughts for them? Well, the story you began with is what I've heard over and over and over again, and that is uh, I read all these guys in one camp or the other, and there's much there that makes sense to me, but then I have all these other questions that seem to push up against what I'm reading, and their answers tend to, to, to be forced. And I hear guys tell me all the time, when I found New Covenant Theology, it was like, oh, these guys don't have to do a lot of pressing and forcing it this just seems like what a plain reading of the Bible teaches, mm-hmm. and and that's that's true. That we we place extremely high value on biblical theology as opposed to systematic theology. We want to read the Bible as it's as it's laid out, and more than anything else, our concern is to glorify Jesus Christ. Where, you know, as much as I mean, I'm, I'm a convinced Trinitarian, but the Bible is not a book intended to reveal Trinity. The Bible is a book intended to reveal Jesus Christ. The mm-hmm. Father says, you want to glorify me? Worship my Son. The Spirit was sent to glorify the Son. Our calling in all of human life is glorify Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced New Covenant theology expresses and emphasizes that more than any other approach to the Scripture. Awesome. And I have to say it, it was Apollinarianism that I was thinking of. <laughs> I, I have fell into that over and over just by overthinking things. I've really decided that I'm just going to, what the New Testament says about Christ is who he was, and that's that's all I can go with. I, I cannot overthink. You know, the uh, Christian philosophy is very over my head. Um, the, I don't know if you've heard some of the philosophical models of the Trinity, but it's wild. And it goes way beyond <laughs> what we've been given. So, but I, I really agree with you about what New Co- Covenant Theology says. I'm sure I'm going to get some uh, awesome messages from my Reformed friends about this episode, <laughs> and I, I might shoot those objections to you. Like, how would you answer that? But bring uh, them on. Let's do a debate. Let's do a discussion. Uh, all three of hey, us. Hey, that yeah, that'd be great. I'll I'll I, I'll talk to my 1689 friend or or my Pado Baptist friend. And see, because um, they they get really <laughs> they get really offended 
when I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't fall there. And they're like, that's just, man, you have to, this is what it is. And I'm like, why? You're like, why can't I, why can't I reject the Sabbath as being binding? Well, you can't hold the Ten Commandments being the moral law. I don't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yeah, but like on, on the ears, that sounds like really bad. But the way you explain it is we're not saying we've rejected morality. You know, we've just rejected a covenant of, of, of works and death that was never given to us anyway. So um, maybe we'll have to have a part two, because I know one of the objections is going to be, then how are the Gentiles judged? What are they judged according to? Did Christ's active obedience apply to us, or is it just his cross work? You know, the, the pa- uh, is that passive obedience, his uh, uh, obeying the Father for redemption? Yeah, that's, I don't really know where to start on answering those for myself, because I have a very limited amount of scriptures to go to for even the imputed righteousness stuff. We have that one passage in Corinthians that, you know, he became sin, so we might become the righteousness of God. And N.T. Wright does a really horrible job with that one with a new perspective on Paul. I don't know if you've ever delved into that. Uh, but uh, yeah, if I um, if I put some stuff together, I'd love to have you back on and, and talk about some of the more um, redemption issues that come into play with what did Christ fulfill and things of that sort. Yeah, so, love to. Anytime. Doug, uh, thank you for coming on the show. God bless you in your uh, church in Colorado. I appreciate it, and I hope to talk soon. Thanks. Until next time, it depends on how you look at it. <laughs>